0: I'm going to preach a very off-balanced message this morning, and I'm warning you about that, um, mostly because it's probably going to be recorded, and, and the guys listening to it, don't need to worry that Adam's going off the rails. But I think there's something in us that is so far pulled to the left that we don't even see that I really feel like we're going to pull it really hard to the right. And if that creates some fallout, I'd rather deal with that. But I feel like the Lord is wanting to drive something home this morning. And I I love a bit of DIY, those of you who know me. And when you're building something and you want it to last, and you're using a hammer and nails, there's this awesome little nail. It's called a clout nail. It's got some little ribs on it, and it's designed to go in and not come out. And when you use this nail, you take a hammer and you smack that thing until the head disappears into the wood so that you can't even get the claw part of the hammer and pull it out. And I feel like the Lord's wanting to do that. For us this morning is drive. So that saying even of drive it home—that that is what you do. When you drive a nail home, you hammer that thing into the wood. So, okay, I want everyone to close your eyes quickly, and I want you to think about Jesus. I want you to think about a church service and coming into worship. Um, I want you to think even about that Psalm one thirty nine. Like the Lord knowing all of your thoughts before a word is even on your tongue, discerning it from afar. And if that causes in you a very small moment of anxiety, a little bit of uncertainty of if I come into Jesus' presence with my sin and the stuff that I'm carrying and the areas I messed up and I'm not convinced that all I'm going to find on the face of Jesus is going to be love and kindness and affection, there's the small moment of, like, I'm worried that I'm going to get called out or there's going to be some element of displeasure. When you think about coming to the presence of God, I want you to put up your hand. Keep your eyes closed. Okay. So there's some hands going up there. Okay, you guys can open your eyes. For Every hand that went up there, I think... There are a few more who didn't. Don't worry, no one is watching. You're not, busted. But I feel like there's this thing in us called religion that relies essentially on us and our ability to overcome sin and our ability to self-correct and self-purify that the Lord is saying you've misunderstood the gospel. And so the title for this preach is A Wonder to cure our wondering, okay, a wonder, W-O, like caught up in the wonder of the Lord, to cure our wondering, which is these hearts that wander around, away from Him and the things of Him. And we're going to read from John, and a little bit of background to John, so just to this passage we're going to read, John is this, so John, the apostle disciple John writes this book, and he introduces in this book, this guy, Jesus. And he starts off by introducing Jesus, saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And that everything that was made was made through the Word, through the person of Jesus. Then he introduces this guy, John the Baptist, who's awesome. And John is this kind of wild, prophetic voice that is heralding the coming of Jesus. He's talking about Jesus' coming, um, And he is this prophetic voice commissioned to tell the world that Jesus is coming, like the light is coming into the world, he says. And John was cool. He was this kind of wild, crazy guy. I think he was the kind of guy we would have all loved in our day and age. He was anti-authoritarian, like he was anti-establishment, he would speak out against the government, he was this bold voice of truth and reason, he was anti-religion. And I think he probably scared the conservatives quite a lot. I think he was one of those guys who the more conservatives would think like, "Yo, that oaks bad news. He's trouble. It's going to cause us admin." And he was the hero of the downtrodden and the oppressed and those who'd just been beaten up by the religious leaders of the day. He was, I suppose, you could say, the first anti-establishment influencer. It's John the Baptist. And. I always think to be a disciple of this guy. So he had disciples. He had guys who followed him, who were devoted to him. They'd follow his ministry. They'd, you know, and I think it must have been quite cool. Like imagine you're one of those guys. Like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm a bit edgy. I'm, this, I'm with John, the wild man. I'm one of his. And then John sees Jesus in this passage, and he points Jesus out, and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you can get up John 1, verse 35 to 42. And this is where we join the story now. So John has just introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it says the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus going by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. I'm like, thanks for the loyalty, guys, but, you know, the disciples leave. And turning around, Jesus saw them following him, and he asked them, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went, and they saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. And it was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon's Peter, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. I love this thing. I love this word, this phrase that he uses of, Behold the Lamb of God. And I love it. I mean, John the Baptist has just introduced Jesus yesterday. He said, look, there goes the Lamb of God. And then the next day, Jesus comes again. And he doesn't say something new. He says, no, no, look, again, there is the Lamb of God. And what I love is that I think to John, this identity of who Jesus was, was the most important thing about Jesus. Why would he keep saying that? I think to John the fact that Jesus was the Lamb of God was the most important thing about Jesus. And we're going to look at this picture of the Lamb. Can you put up verse 37 again quickly, Silo? So I love it. John's two disciples, right? They're with John, the wild man, the prophet, which must have been an awesome position. I think that came with some serious street cred. They were like, these cool anti-establishment you know, rebels that everyone looked up to, even the ones, I think, that were a little bit intimidated by them. And then they see Jesus, and they leave John, and they follow him. And I always wonder, like, it doesn't tell us, but what did they see in Jesus? What did they see about Jesus that made them decide to leave John the Baptist and just follow Jesus? Because to be a disciple was no small thing. I think we misunderstand that in our It's not like someone I'm following on Instagram and then they do something lame. I'm like, I'm just going to unfollow you. It's like, no, it was a call. You would devote your life to the one whose disciple you were. You would live with them and eat with them and sleep with them. And their ministry was your ministry. Their call was your call. You took on everything they did. And then Jesus walks past and they're just like, cheers, John. We're out of here. And so, I want to run back a little bit. You know, this book, John, it starts introducing Jesus, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and through Him everything was made. And I want to take us back to the Garden of Eden and just break down some things, because where I'm going this morning is that if you believe that you are saved by anything less than only the grace of God, I think you misunderstand the gospel. And that's where we're going this morning. And so let's look back to the Garden of Eden. So God creates everything, all of creation, this world that we live in. God creates it, stretches out the heavens, and he looks at it and says, you know what, I'm going to make man. I'm going to make something that looks like me, and I'm going to put it in this garden for no other reason. Like, God was not lonely. He was perfectly fulfilled within himself. But I think that God created everything purely as an expression of his creativity and his love, and his desire just to make, because he is good. And so Jesus, so the word, like God through Jesus, creates everything. And he creates man, creates Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And there's one rule, which is don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there was no sin. No sin. There was no struggle. There was no repentance. There was no fasting. There were no strongholds that needed to be broken down. There was no great thing that needed to be done. There was God making man. And it says he gave them everything he created to enjoy and to look after. And then he would come in the cool of the day and he would walk with Adam and Eve. What is your purpose? Why were you made? Why were you created? No other reason than to walk with Jesus. That's why he made them. I want you to think about that for a second. The creator of the universe just enjoyed the company of man. And so the Garden of Eden, that's what it was. It was God delighting in man and man delighting in God. Just hanging out. That was the whole idea. There was no death, so they were immortal. They lived in eternity. I love it. John 17, verse 3, it says, This is eternal life. What were we built for? Eternity. You know what eternal life is? That they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus who you sent. You were built to know God. That's it. That is the foundation stone of your entire existence. But there is a big problem, is that sin did enter the world. And I'm not going to do a whole preach on sin. This is where I'm telling you this thing is unbalanced. I'm not here to call out your sin this morning. I'm not here to say your sin doesn't matter. It does. Because your sin affects this relationship. It affects the friendship and the intimacy with God. But it's not the point. That's the problem that we need the cure for. And sin is a problem because it is so unlike Jesus. So your sin is rooted in selfishness or anger or insecurity or greed or fear. Or, and those things are so unlike the character and nature of God That the two can't coexist. The Lord is like, this stuff is unlike me. And so, because of your sin, there's this rift in the friendship. And that is why our sin matters and why we talk about it. Not because I want you to be a better, more moral person, but because sin separates you from God. And I would do whatever it takes to have you closer to Him. Because it is why you were made. It is what you were built for. And under the old covenant, there was this problem of sin. So, You would sin, and because your sin is offensive to God, it requires something to make it right and to pay for it. So there was this kind of system of sacrifice where essentially what you've done is you have sinned, and God is good and just, so your sin demands a price. And so you would bring a sacrifice, actually, to the temple, and a priest would kill the sacrifice, and it would atone. There would be blood spilt to atone for the sin. And you think like, wow, that's so hectic, shame, poor animals, and like Peter's going nuts, and the SPCA is freaking out. But actually, at its heart, this thing was redemptive. Is that God is looking at you, and he's saying, we'll see. Bro, I love you so much, but you've sinned. And it demands a punishment, and I so don't want my wrath to fall on you, because I love you. So there's another way, bring something else. And I'll pour out my wrath on that. And my justice will be satisfied in something, actually that's not you, in a sacrifice so that you and I, we can be right. That was the whole point of the sacrifices. But there were rules about the sacrifice. It had to be a pure, spotless lamb. It had to, well, these requirements for your sacrifice to be acceptable to God. And I want you to notice that. The requirements were the sacrifice. Never in all that time was the worshipper who came to the temple examined. He wasn't looked at. His sacrifice was looked at. Is the sacrifice pure? Is the lamb spotless? If it was, the priest would examine that. They'd look at the sacrifice. The sacrifice was fine. It was slaughtered. Price was paid. Sin atoned for. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Guys, when we come to Jesus, it is not us that he looks at. It's the sacrifice. It is the lamb. The lamb who was spotless, was murdered, to pay the price for our sins so that you and I could have friendship and intimacy with God. And there was this problem, because in the Old Testament, there was sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice. There was, why do laws exist? Because sin exists. No one would have to tell you not to murder if murder wasn't in your heart, okay? And so in the Old Testament, the sin had entered the world, and there was a price required for it, and there's this complex relationship between sin and the law, which is that the law highlights the reality of sin. It exposes the fact that there is sin. Look at the speed limit. Why do they have to tell me not to drive 140 in a 60 zone? Because my inclination is I want to go fast. I want to get there. If there was no speed limit, there would be no law to break. But the fact that I am inclined to not always follow what the speed limit is means I need to put a limit there. And when I exceed it, I break the law. So the law shows us where we fall short of God's standard, shows us that we need salvation. But the problem is that if we're always trying to keep the law, we're going to fail. Who's never committed a crime? Have you always crossed the road at a zebra crossing? Okay. Who's jaywalked? Who's crossed the road, not at a zebra crossing? Put up your hands, you dirty criminals. <laughs> what do you have? You've broken the law. That's actually an offence. I checked it up. The Road Traffic Management Act. You're not allowed to just cross the road, guys. Sorry. You're a bunch of criminals. You are. Broken the law. This is the thing, is that salvation comes to us. This came out in the prayer meeting this morning. Salvation comes to you through faith in Jesus. It. Nothing else. You will not be saved by following the law. Because you guys can't even cross the road. I'm putting myself in that box, by the way. I jaywalk. And so there was this problem in the Old Testament, is that sin would highlight your shortcomings. You'd make a sacrifice, but you would not live the perfect life. You would leave and you would sin again. And then you'd need a new sacrifice. And so you'd bring your sacrifice and then you would go home. And I don't even know if you'd make it home without sinning again. And so there was this permanent solution that was needed. And Jesus looks at us and says, you know what, man? We can't, we can't keep doing this cycle. We need to break this. I am coming into the world to pay this price for... Done. Done. Paid once and for all. I, Jesus, I'm going to come and I'm going to fulfil the law. And this is what Jesus did. He came to this earth and lived a perfect life. You need to understand that Jesus was completely without sin, lived an absolutely perfect life, complied with God's moral law in every single way. And then the perfect Lamb of God presents Himself as a sacrifice for you and I, so that he can be slaughtered, so that you and I can actually walk in the freedom that he offers us on the cross. And now when God looks at you, you know what he sees? The sacrifice. That is what he examines. When he looks at Kevin, he sees Jesus who died for Kevin to cover his sin. And he says, Kevin, you and me are square. Your sin is atoned for. He doesn't examine Kevin too closely. He examines the lamb who takes away the sin, not just of Kevin, but of the world. Problem is that religion tells us, and we've got this bent in us. That's why I ask if you feel this anxiety of like, I don't know, maybe you were impatient this morning or angry, or maybe you haven't settled your taxes, or maybe you sinned in some way in the week, and you come into church this morning and you have this sense of like, Lord, I'm nervous that I'm going to be exposed. I loved it that they read that Psalm 139 this morning. Man, that is my, probably one of my favorite passages in scripture. My wife will now I read that thing. All, it's like my go-to. But I love that picture. And for some of us, I used to read that and I'd be like, the Lord knows a word before it's even on my tongue. He's acquainted with all my ways. He knows what's in the depths of me. I was like, Lord, that terrifies me. It does. It makes me feel uncomfortable because I know what's in me. Here's the thing though. The Lord is not unaware of the sin that lives in your heart. It's not like by not saying it, you're fooling him. No, no, he sees it. But he sees his son, the sacrifice. And I'm so scared of the self-improvement gospel where we feel like we need to deal with our sin before we can enter his presence, or we need to, you know, make ourselves better before we'll be found acceptable to him because it robs you of the power of the gospel. Because it is rooted in this. It is that I will be my Savior. I will fix me so that, Lord, you can accept me. And the Lord is looking at you and saying, I don't care how good you get. It is never, ever, ever going to be enough. And that shouldn't discourage you. It should actually give you hope. Because we have this person of Jesus who has taken away the sin of the whole world. The problem is that as Christians, we so often concentrate on the do not. Don't. okay don't murder is an easy one like you should all be able to kind of handle that one but do not covet do not steal do not lie i'm married to ellie over there yeah she's amazing and the lord's asked me to be faithful to her as my wife can i tell you something i don't walk around my whole day reminding myself adam don't cheat on ellie don't sleep with that person. Don't look at that thing. I don't. I, like, I don't run around the whole day focusing on the stuff I shouldn't do. You know what I do? I think about the good thing that I've got. I think about the intimacy I have with her. I think about the gift that she is to me. The fact that the Lord has called us to be a couple. How fulfilled I am in her and her and me. And in focusing on that, like, it's really easy. I'm like, I'm ruined for anyone else because of that woman. I like, there's nothing else that I'm like, I don't want anything else. It's her. And that is the picture that Jesus is trying to give us. He's like, guys, don't focus so hard on trying to play whack a mole with all your sin all the time so that you can come into my presence. Come into my presence. I'm to look at the Old Testament, the first commandment you shall have no other God but me. That's quite like, whoa, okay. Better toe the line here. I want you to look in the New Testament. Matthew 22, verse 37. Don't put this up. I've got it here. But Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All of the law and the prophets are fulfilled in these two things. Love, not obey. If you love him, you will obey him. But you don't obey him to be loved. That's not how it works. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus changes the phrasing there. Because he says, "I'm I'm making a new covenant with you. You're not going to have to come and bring your sacrifices anymore to be acceptable. I'm doing it. I'm paying the price. I will be the sacrifice so that when God looks at you, he's going to see me. You put verse 38 up there, Silo. Love it, turning around. Jesus saw them following him. And he said, what is it that you want? I feel like that's the question Jesus asks all of us when we decide to follow him. He's like, what do you want? Why are you here? What is it that you want from me? I want to see some power. I want to see some miracles. Do you hope I'm just going to, you know, fix all your problems? Because if you are, there's religion for that. What I'm here for, I want to be your friend. I want to be your father. This was the design. We were made to walk in the cool of the day with Jesus. I feel like he's saying, listen, like forget about trying to sort out all the stuff and get everything so right and deal with your addictions and like, we'll get to that stuff, man. But come to me, because if you fix your eyes on me, I'm going to ruin you for the things of this world. You're going to taste something so good that you're not going to want that. You're going to realize that that interferes, actually, with the friendship. You don't fix that to get the friendship. You've got the friendship. You fix that because it taints the friendship. But it's rooted in love. And what I love is that Jesus, in the Scripture, says, Can you go over to 39 quick? They come to Jesus. So these are John's disciples. And they come to Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want? And then he says, come, follow me. You know what I love about Jesus here? He doesn't send them back to John. He doesn't say, okay, cool, if you want this thing I've got, go back to John. Ask John to ask me. I will tell John to tell you. No, Jesus says, you want access? Come. Come and follow me. You do not need an intermediary anymore to have a relationship with Jesus. You do not need me to have a relationship with Jesus. You do not need some priest or prophet or confessional or sacrifice. Like, you don't. You deal direct with him. You have access direct with him. This is why I believe in adult baptism. Say, you make the call to follow him. Someone doesn't make it on your behalf. You decide to lay down your life and pursue Jesus. You die to your old self and follow him. No one else does that for you because that old system is gone. You don't need the priest anymore, man. You have access. And then Jesus invites his men to come with him. I love it. They say they're going to follow Jesus. So he doesn't say, okay, cool. Go sort out your tax. Go pay that traffic fine. Go stop jaywalking. He says, no, come and live with me. And so these guys go and they spend the night with Jesus and they hang out with him. And they just, they're in his presence and they're around him. And that is what Jesus is calling us to Go to 40 quick. And this I love. So Andrew, Simon's, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. Go to 41. And the first thing that Andrew did was find his brother and tell him, we have found the Messiah. Pretty much all of us are here. Who has had Jesus personally appear to them and reveal himself in whatever, Bernie Bush, Falling off a donkey. None of you? Okay, great. Aiden. Keen to hear about that, bro. No, but for most of us, someone has come and said, come and meet my friend Jesus. I have found him. That's how I met him. Someone came and said, man, I've met someone. You've got to come and see. And I met Jesus. Can I tell you, I think this is one of the greatest acts of love that you can perform for another human being is take them and introduce them to your friend Jesus, the Lamb of God, who will take away all of their sin. And then in verse, was it forty-one? So he brings him to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him. Forty-two. Sorry, sorry. And Jesus looks at him and says, "You are Simon, son of John." Jesus knows. Everything about this guy, he even knows who his dad is, knows his whole family history, got the lowdown on all the father wounds, like God knows everything in this moment about Simon. And he says to him, but you will be called Cephas, Peter. Jesus' first act with his first new disciple is to prophesy over him, and it's a message of hope. This is the guy who's going to deny Jesus. Jesus. This is the guy who is the hypocrite who's going to be sitting with the Jews and he's so scared of the religious leaders of the day that he doesn't eat the bacon and causes other believers to stumble. This is this man. Jesus looks at him and he says, you are going to be the rock on which I build my church. Is that your experience and expectation when you see Jesus face to face? that he is going to speak prophetic words of life and encouragement over you. Because if it's not, I don't know if you understand the gospel. And I'll look, guys, I wrestle with this too, man. I'm aware of my own shortcomings and failings, and I'm not trying to gloss over sin. Sin matters. But it's dealt with in relationship. And in this first encounter, Jesus gives this guy a new name new call. He doesn't look at him and say, listen, bro, I just want to let you know, you're going to let me down. You're going to deny me. Better not do it. I see hypocrisy in you. Better sort that out before it becomes an issue. No, he says, man, I see something in you. I see what you could be. And I'm prophesying it over you. You know what changes, Simon? Simon. Spends three years with Jesus, spends time with Jesus, lives with Jesus, walks with Jesus, watches Jesus minister, sails with Jesus, hikes with Jesus, rests with Jesus. walks in the cool of the day with Jesus. And this is the thing, is that being close to Him changes you? It will. It just does. It's just the way he operates. I mean, we covered that in that holiness preach that, like, you know, before, if if filth touched you, it would stain your garment. Except with Jesus, when a diseased person touches him, his purity flows into them, and they're healed. Like, it works backwards with him. Look at these disciples when they came to him, and they were a rough bunch of oaks. They were selfish. They were ambitious. They were jostling for position. I mean, come on, for Pete's sake, the one guy asked Jesus if he could sit at his right-handed. Like, these guys are so full of their own flesh and ambition. But look at their lives at the end. Martyrs. Guys giving their lives for the things Jesus loves. Walking in incredible gifting, like, full of humility, full of compassion, full of boldness, full of conviction, changed by relationship with him. But they were not those things when they met him. It was not those things that qualified them. I think if we met some of those guys, we would have been like, bro, you need to do Alpha again. Do you even understand the gospel? Like, but they didn't. And so this is the thing, is that we don't pursue holiness. Holiness is not your highest pursuit. Your call is relationship. Relationship. You know why? Remember, in holiness, when we covered that, what is holiness? Give me a definition. It's set apart. It is God. God is holy. He is the model and the benchmark for holiness. You want to pursue holiness, which the simplest definition of it is utter uniqueness. There is only one. There is God. There is no one and nothing like Him. You want to be holy? Get close to Him. See what He's like, because He is the benchmark. If you want to measure your holiness... You're measuring against Him. And that would be a terrifying thing if it was just you measuring yourself against God. But do you know what He sees when He sees you? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I feel like we can't not get this because if we don't, we'll become this demoralized, destroyed, tired, wrecked, worked out people trying to pursue our own moral perfection and we can't, I can't, I have tried. I don't struggle in marriage because I found a better thing. You will not struggle in your holiness if you find the better thing. If you find him, if you can lock eyes with Jesus, he will ruin you for anything else that this world can give you. But you've got to find it, man. And I don't know how to show you. Because God has done away with the old covenant of priests. There is no intermediary anymore. There is you and there is him. And there is one way to him. And that is through the Lamb. That is through Jesus. And anything short of that is a lie and is a false gospel. Anything short of that. Anything mixed in with your own works it's dead religion. Now look at the Pharisees. They pursued holiness, man. These guys would like tithe on their spices. They wouldn't spit on the ground because they were worried that their spit might take a seed and roll it in the dust and the seed would sprout, and now they farmed on the Sabbath. Now they've sinned. Like, I mean, who have you, like, these guys crossed the zebra crossing. And Jesus comes and they miss Him. So wrapped up in their own performance. It is the wonder that will cure your wondering. It is being caught up in the wonder that will cure your wondering. I love weddings, man. I love the picture of a wedding and the bride and groom are dancing. And like, you'll check... That groom is not like dancing with his wife, like checking around with the bridesmaids. No. His eyes are like locked. He's like, man, I I see you. I'm ruined for anything else. I'm yours. I feel like the Lord is calling us to that today. And I I feel like I want to ask that question again. Can we all just close our eyes? And if there's even a hint in you of this thing of wanting to pursue your own moral perfection and be your own savior, or there's this sense of this fear of coming to the Lord's presence. I Thank you, Mr. Gospel, and it's not an indictment. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I feel like the Lord's saying, I want to drive that nail so deep into the wood that it will not come out. Maybe the worship guys could just come up quickly. When you think about Jesus, do you feel the sense of acceptance and love And kindness directed towards you, free of fear and anxiety? Or do you feel some measure of, I'm a little worried that I'm not going to measure up in this moment? Let me tell you, God knows everything that goes on in your heart, He is acquainted with all your ways. Before a word is even on your lips, He knows it. You know what the word says? It doesn't say he exposes that. It says he hems you in, behind and before you. He covers. And that doesn't mean we hide sin and shy away from it. No, we deal with it when we have to. But for goodness sake, your sin is the very reason Jesus died. Why would you let it keep you from him? Here we can stand again.